This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. We are in another COVID-19 remote era episode of the podcast. And today I'm talking remotely with Doug Constantiner of Society Brewing, CEO of Society Brewing. Welcome to the podcast, Doug. Thank you for having me. I don't think I've stopped smiling since I saw you <laughs> virtually. You know, if we were in person, I'd just be giving you a big hug. Yeah, you know, and I'm miss, I, I feel I feel that hug energy virtually, you know, through this video chat, and uh, you know, as we talk here, um, this is a podcast that I've wanted to do for a couple of years now. I think ever since we started the podcast, and uh, for some reason it hasn't happened. I haven't been in San Diego at the right time, the right place to talk with Doug. Um, now we're doing it remotely, and it just feels really good to see you uh, through this and to to have this conversation. So um, thanks for joining me on the podcast, Doug. We're going to talk about all sorts of things uh, over this podcast. Obviously, Society is one of our, our favorite uh, West Coast IPA makers, Belgian beer style makers. Um, they have, uh, uh, with their wild and feral type beers, have crushed it with our blind panel and done some uh, really fascinating and interesting things. We're going to have a great conversation about brewing. We're going to talk a little bit about how, um, in an incredible uh, stroke of foresight, they um, made a switch from kind of a draft only production model and, and into kind of packaging um, in a way in a time frame that uh, seems really uh, uh, prescient at this point. Um, can't wait to have this conversation before we do nearly 2,000 breweries across the US, Canada, and Mexico partner with GD Chillers. Innovative modular designs and no proprietary parts propel GD ahead as the premier choice for your glycol chilling needs. Breweries you recognize, like Russian River, Ninkasi, Jack's Abbey, Samuel Adams, and more, trust G&D to chill the beer you love. Call G&D Chillers to discuss your project today, or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. Also, kickstart your innovation with Old Orchard Craft Juice Concentrates. Old Orchard knows that a strategic seasonal release calendar means higher margins, increased taproom traffic, and secured shelf space for your brand. That's why they collaborate with countless breweries on product development conversations year-round. With unique flavors like watermelon, rhubarb, pineapple, and plum, the possibilities are endless. Get your Old Orchard sample kit with free six-pack cooler at www.oldorchard.com brewer. So Doug, we normally start the podcast off with a little bit of history and uh, help me understand how you got to where you are today as CEO of Society and uh, what your journey through the world of craft beer looked like. So how I got here, um, I was able to give myself this title. I don't know if I've earned it, but... <laughs> Oh, I, I hear you. That's a, you know, people ask me, well, how do you get to be editor of a beer magazine? And I, I said, <laughs> well, you, you just, you know, put, put the uh, funding and financing together and just yeah. start it. You know, that's all it takes. Start, <laughs> I didn't start at the bottom of society. I certainly didn't graduate business school and then come on here as an executive. Um, but yeah, journey, I think is pretty similar to a lot of people in this industry, or at least can relate to people who love beer, love homebrewing. Um, Classic, classic love story. You know, I 
really started to love craft beer. And it, I guess it, I shouldn't say it. It's not that I really started to love craft beer. It hit me over the head, smacked me right in the face. And I said, holy cow, what is this stuff? I love it. I love it. And I knew that's, that was my passion. That was going to be my hobby and started exploring more and more craft beer. This is the early, early called 2000, 2001 is, is when that, when that happened. And just, it like really overtook my life. And, um, I just read everything I could. I responsibly consumed as much as I could. Um, you know, these are the days when it was like just beer advocate and rape beer forums. And, um, I was so obsessed with it. I, it just kind of naturally progressed into like, well, how can I learn more about this? Well, I should make it. And that, that seems like the next step is I, I can't read anymore. I can't drink anymore. I'm just going to start making it. And I started making it and really loved it. Uh, during that time. So I'll say when, when I was 18 freshman year of college, I knew I wanted to start a brewery one day. That was always my goal. I just didn't think it was actually like a, a like a, a realistic thing to do. Um, I was, the way I was raised, I should say, I don't know if it's, you know, I went to a private school, but I'm Jewish. So like everybody in my family is like a lawyer, a doctor or a banker. So I just thought that's, that's just what you do. You pick one of those professions and then you, you go for it. And I thought I was going to be the rebel by becoming a banker and then retiring at 45. So it, it, that was my, the goal. So the goal was major in finance, uh, make it to wall street and, do investment banking or private equity and, you know, save up $30 million, retire at 45 and then I'll start a brewery and that'll be my, my second career. But I need to have like a real job and a real career, um, until then. So I was brewing on all throughout college and I get to New York. I'm still brewing there working like crazy doing investment banking. Uh, and about a year into it, a lot of things started that, kind of fall into place that forced my hand into leaving that that career um i was offered a job at six point or an internship sorry internship at six point when they were still tiny 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 they're maybe like a year or two old and i wasn't able to take it because i was working seven days a week um so I'll, i'll to put it in perspective at the time there was kelso brooklyn uh the brewery that was on the east side of Manhattan, Captain Lawrence, and Six Point. So that was there, what? If, if Captain Lawrence was around, that was post-2006, two, right? It's 2007. Oh, 2000. Okay, cool. Because yeah. I, I was actually in New York at that time and, yeah. uh, and and know what you're talking about. Not a lot of breweries. The Heartland Brewery was also. Heartland, uh, yeah. They were, but Kelso, Kelso, I think, brewed all their stuff. Yeah. Out yeah. in Brooklyn. Yep. But um, so there, there wasn't a lot. And. I got off that job, the internship come in, you know, scrub, scrub drains on Saturday or something. And I was actually a, a brewer that we were driving up to Captain Lawrence for a release who was like, yeah, I want you to come in. And, um, I was in the homebrew club there and I made some incredible friendships. Um, some of which are now, uh, there are a lot of professional brewers, but you know, I had that and I, I promised myself I never wanted to miss an opportunity like that because I was working seven days a week. It was like 80 hours a week doing investment banking. So I was like, I, I need to start maybe thinking that if I can't accept that job, that internship, that's going to somebody else. And I can't let somebody else get ahead of me. I've got to do this now. Um, pretty shortly after that, 
uh, I was out to dinner with my supervisor, my boss, basically, and my he was also my mentor. Um, I was I had taken the GMAT. I was preparing to go to business school, um, and it was like I was looking at Harvard and Stanford, those places, and the other big five. And one night he asked me, he's like, "So what's your grand plan? Are you going to come back here? Do you want to get into something else?" And I I kind of laid it out to him what I just told you guys that. Oh, I'm gonna you know retire at 45 and this this this. He he was like Doug. It's like I'm 39. I have a wife. I have three beautiful kids. I own a great house. We have a vacation condo in Vermont for skiing. Like you think my wife's gonna let me retire in six years? It's like oh, yeah, good, very good point. He's like you know see if you can do it now. So, you know the the feel like the FOMO basically like fear of missing out and not learning and just thinking like, wait, I've got to wait 20 more years to like start mastering this uh, trade, this this thing that is everything to me. And, you know, having the wisdom laid on me from from a, someone who I still consider a close friend, I made the decision not to go to business school. And uh, it was like December 2009, I started building a little plan to move out to San Diego uh, to become a professional brewer learn the trade, learn the business, and then 10, 15 years down the line, start my own brewery. Uh, so, and I'll, to back up why San Diego is that I always had a fascination with production brewing versus pub brewing. And at the time I saw Portland as the brew pub capital of the world where it's like every corner there's a brew pub. And I saw San Diego as the highest concentration of world-class production breweries in the world. Um, aside from the pizza ports, you had, which were pubs, <coughs> you had Port Lost Abbey, which was the spinoff of the pizza ports, Stone, Ballast Point, Green Flash, Ale Smith, Coronado, um, I'm sure if I'm forgetting, Carl Strauss. I mean, you had some like titans of the industry, some guys who were like just raking in awards left and right. And they were, for the most part, all production facilities. So I'm like, all right, I'll go there. I'll learn that side of the business. Fast forward a little bit, I end up at the brewery in Orange County when, like, there was, like, seven or eight employees. I think I was employee, like, number seven or eight, even. Um, they brought me on. Uh, the team was Travis Smith, who I started Society with, Jay Goodwin, and then I was their lackey. Um, <laughs> and uh, it was fun. It was the uh, – Tyler King was the head of – Director of Brewing Operation, I don't remember the title, but he was, you know, the the manager directing us, but it was the three of us in the brewery doing a lot of work, long hours, a lot of fun. I mean, it was, you know, the first Black Tuesday release and the second Black <laughs> Tuesday, the first dude tart, like all these crazy things that at the time you're just, you don't even realize like how big it was. And um, Travis had left the brewery for an opportunity down in San Diego. And then shortly after that, I, I missed him so much and we missed each other. We got together and we're like, what if we do this thing together? Maybe now's the time. Um, actually, that time I had a, a life mentor, a friend who uh, I saw at a brewery, uh, one of the releases. And I was like, where are you staying? He's like, I'm staying at a hotel down the street. I'm like, dude, because I was still living in San Diego. I was like, why don't you just come down to my house and we can have some beers together? He's like, okay, cool. We did that. And that night he was like, you need to start a brewery. I was like, <laughs> Lloyd, no, you're crazy. That's that's not gonna. No, what do you? You know, I've only it's only been a couple of years. 
He's like, it's like having a kid. You'll never be ready. Just do it now. And so I hit up Travis and Travis is like, I was, I'm ready to leave this job. Let's do this thing together. So we started that process January 1st, 2011 and opened May, 2012, uh, gone through a lifetime of changes over the past eight <laughs> years, uh, from a, a company maturation standpoint, uh, in terms of operations, um, and just seeing this industry change before our eyes. I mean, we were only eight years old. We opened May 2012, and people consider us like part of the old guard. And I look at Chris Kramer at Carl Strauss, I'm like, they opened in 1989. Craft beer wasn't cool. And like they did this out of passion. And um, I remember when I left investment banking, and I was telling people what I wanted to become. This is like 2008. They're like, I was like, yeah, I want to be a brewer. They're like, what do you mean, a brewer? I'm like, the like craft beer. They're like, oh, microbrew. It's like, yeah, <laughs> you know, rolling my eyes. I'm like, yeah, microbrew. Right. They're like, yeah, I've I've been to a microbrewery before. They uh, they have great pretzels. You know, it's just like <laughs> stuff where you're like, God, you just don't get it. Like, this is right. why I want to get out of the corporate world. And then by like 2011, 2012, everybody loved beer. And, right. Right. Um, and that's a. One of the reasons we picked San Diego to start society was that, and we were pretty open with the the owners of all the brews I just mentioned, and we basically told them, like, y'all just spent the last 20 years of your businesses priming the market for us. Like, we're not looking to be the next, like, I told Greg Cook, I was like, I'm not going to be the next Greg Cook. Like, I don't have your personality, your enthusiasm. I'll let you turn the masses. I'm just going to take a small portion of them. And uh, And we've seen it across the country that the first you know, handful of breweries that open up in places where craft beer might have not been cool, they've had to be the ambassadors. Whereas in San Diego, you just people just drank IPA like it was nothing. Sure, and that's happened sure. that happened before IPA was cool. Like you drank IPA. That's just what San Diego was. I mean, between Stone, IPA, Ruination, Sculpin, Swamis, all the Pizza Port stuff, the Port Brewing stuff. I mean, it's right. just like the most classic, historic Green Flash West Coast IPA. I mean, it was like that's just what you drank. Like if you ordered a macro or a light lager, uh, the server was sure to know that you're a tourist. So <laughs> we, no, <laughs> we I, love the market here in San Diego. I know Diego. what you're talking about. I remember that like moment somewhere in the 2000s where it was like, oh, so I, IPA is the thing now. Um, as you and, uh, and Travis were kind of envisioning the brewery that you wanted to create here in San Diego, um, talk to me a little bit about, uh, the creative vision for that and how you decided what it was you wanted to brew, how you were going to make Mark in a pretty dense, not just pretty dense an insanely dense now craft beer market. And I shouldn't say, even then it was pretty dense. It wasn't like you were walking into a, you know, a, a market that was just, you know, had a few big players and no one else. Like it was a pretty crowded and, you know, even at that point, people were even asking, Oh, this is, you know, how is this going to, how are all these breweries going to be sustained in the market? Uh, how did you walk into that kind of busy, well-developed craft beer market and say, hey, this is our vision for what we're going to do. Our belief was and still is today, like if you want to be the best, you surround yourself with the best. And I knew it would be a constant challenge uh, having somebody like Alesmith a mile away from us cranking out some of the best beers in the world. I mean, you better bring your A game. So having that challenge uh, certainly helps. But from like what kind of beers we wanted to make, it's pretty simple. I mean, we were... 
very heavily inspired by a, a handful of breweries, Russian River, Alpine. Um, those are probably the two biggest, but uh, Moonlight, Pizza Port, uh, a lot of stuff. It's like, what do we like to drink? What do we like about it? And we were very philosophical about, you know, why we got into beer and that it ties back to why we named it society. So a lot of it, yeah, being inspired by breweries that kind of shaped us into what kind of beer we like to drink. And then working at breweries that, uh, being able to see like outside of just homebrew or what you can afford on the shelves, having like an over allotment of everything from a, a light lager or a, or a Pilsner, even to like a barley wine and you're like, what am I drinking the most of? And then you start to get really sick of like the big heavy stuff. Like you don't, like you're just like giving it away to your friends. I mean, I, I had a case. This is really funny Archer. coming from somebody who was just talking to me about how excited they were about black Tuesday releases and who, you know, yeah, right. it's, it, it's, there's so much fun and I love drinking those beers. But what I realized for me, and this is for Travis sure. too, is that like I got into beer cause I like drinking a lot, not like getting drunk, sure, but like sure. I want to consume volumes worth. Right, and right. if I wanted to sip on four ounces of something, um, it's just not my personally, my thing, you know, I think bottle shares are fun and you get to taste a bunch of stuff, but I'd rather drink the whole of one thing and maybe have another two or three or four or five, depending on what the beer is, what the day is. And so we really just set out to make beer that we like to we personally like to drink um, our palates align almost identical, which is really crazy to think from a sensory aspect. Um, so we had similar philosophies, uh, love the same beer. And really what it comes down to is drinkability. And unfortunately, Bud Light used that in the mid aughts yeah. quite a bit, but, but it's what it comes down to. And I think the, the Holy grail of beer is not the, the beer that there's a hundred bottles of and, every 30, 25 different bottles were aged in a different barrel. The holy grail of beer is the beer that you can drink every single day that you can buy on the shelf at the store and you can have a couple of them every day and you don't get sick of it. You know, if you think about like, what's your favorite food? I mean, it's something you probably want to eat every single day. It's like, oh, that's my favorite. You know, I don't know how many, for me at least, I shouldn't say yours, but for me at least, you know, my favorite food, as much as I love fine dining, I can't do that every night. You sure, know, it's like sure. too rich, but it's for special occasions and it's such a, a crazy sensory experience. But for the most part, it's like I get pumped to make fish tacos at home. <laughs> I mean, that's it's right, so good. Right. And that's that's how we looked at it with beers. Let's make, you know, for the hoppy stuff. What do we love about hoppy beers? Well, it's the aroma. It's not the bitterness, which is why we've never published our IBUs. Because the the IBU race of the mid-aughts had nothing to do with hoppiness. It was just bitterness. So we were like, let's just make these beers, you know, as hoppy as we possibly can and make them a delivery vehicle for that hop aroma and get it into your face as quickly as possible. But it has to be balanced, too. Sure, So, um, and balance is everything. Everything that is the, the ultimate is having harmony of flavors and uh, if you think about an orchestra that you could have five violins playing in a section of 50 strings and they all play well together and then they match up perfectly with percussion and the 
the woods and the brass, and it all sounds like one unit driving towards the same place. And I, I always like, I mean, when I was a home brewer, I violated that rule all the time. And now, like the way I explain it is if you were to hand me a, a vanilla stout that has just tons of vanilla in it, I think a, a lot of people would smell it and go, oh, yeah, that is so good. There's so much vanilla in it. And I drink it and I go, oh, God, there's so much vanilla in it. And it, it's I like the flavor of beer. And I think you can use certain things in beer that aren't sure, Brian Heisko sure. ingredients that can really enhance the beer. But it has to work well with everything else. And the balance is everything. And the balance isn't just in flavor characteristics. But the crazy thing is also drinking experience. We have we opened with two IPAs, both seven and a half percent, both considered West Coast IPAs, the Pupil and the Apprentice. We did this because the World Beer Cup was in San Diego in 2012, and we wanted the uh, random brewer from the middle of the country who has a, a pale ale, a porter, a stout, an IPA, a red, a brown ale, a barley wine, you know, one of each to come into society and go, what? Why do you have two IPAs both at seven and a half percent? It's like, check this shit out. Like, look how different they can be. Not just, you know, one, The Apprentice being that like classic West Coast, piney, citrusy, everything that like got us into IPAs. And then there's this other new beer with these crazy hops called Nelson. It was like this big tropical mango guava. But then aside from that, they had different drinking experiences. So the pupil, when you drink it, it's got this big like upfront aroma kind of like knocks you off your socks. And when you drink it, little soft, super dry. And by the time you swallow, it's all gone. Whereas the apprentice, you had this like really pungent, that pine citrus and you would drink it and then it would really start to open up in your mouth. And as you swallowed it, it started to come up and it has a lingering bitterness. So even after you swallow, it's still in your mouth. So it's not just from a flavor standpoint. It's also what is the experience? It's really interesting even from a like textural mouthfeel time, you know, considering time and how that experience unfolds is kind of fascinating. And I'm going to kind of probe into that and see if we can uh, uh, figure out how and, you know, you accomplish some of that. Before we do that, this episode is brought to you by Hopsteiner, your premium hop supplier dedicated to delivering quality hops and hops products in every package. Visit Hopsteiner for a complete list of offerings or select shop hops to start ordering today. Also, Ska Fabricating is excited to introduce the newest player in their all-star lineup of canning line automation, the Magic Bus, a fully automatic can depalletizer with pallet management. No more pouring time and labor into the manual handling of pallets, top frames, and tier sheets on your canning line. Packing teams can simply load cans, deband, and press start. To learn more, contact Ska Fab today at 970-403-8562 or reach out online at skafabricating.com. You know, I've, I've talked to a lot of brewers. This is episode 136 of this podcast. Um, I've never heard a brewer describe beer in terms of that time experience of how the sensation of the beer changes as you drink it and then as it kind of lingers after you've, you've swallowed that sip. Um, talk to me a little bit more about uh, how you have tried to accomplish that design and and how you were able to translate some of the ideas about how this happens into some of the you know recipe design and some of your brew house process to kind of maximize that. So a, 
a big thing that we looked at. Well, I'll back up. Um, that when I started homebrewing, the books were few and far between. I mean, you had the the Randy Mosher, Ray Daniels. Um, I, I'm forgetting a lot of people can't see writers, that you're but, looking at your bookshelf to kind of to reference <laughs> and then uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I have, I have hundreds of yeah. books now, but it was it was. At the time, it seemed like the standard for IPAs was try and you would you would use your original gravity, and if it's 1065, uh, maybe try and shoot for 65 IBUs using this thing. And going from uh, where I went to college and really discovered West Coast IPAs, which was in Arizona, and I was drinking a bunch of California, Oregon, and. Colorado stuff to living in New York and experience East Coast IPAs, and that you that it was always taught that you you bitter that the higher the alcohol, the more hoppiness it can take, and uh, it's got more residual sugar, so you need to increase the BUs to balance out the residual sugar because bitterness balances sweetness. That was the original idea, and being the young guns, we could kind of like reassess what we really liked and saw what other people were doing and focused a lot more on finishing gravity to IBUs as opposed to original gravity. So with the pupil at seven and a half percent, it's our calculated and uh, our calculated IBUs, which are as close, the closest uh, formula for the homebrewers out there would be the Rager formula. Um, It's got about 50. And if we had said that in 2012, people would be like, (laughs) well, it's not hoppy. Right, right. we're like, all right, so we're just not going to publish the IBU numbers, whereas The Apprentice has 75, 80 IBUs. So that finishing gravity, we always finish our dries out or finish our beers out pretty dry, um, usually one to two Play-Doh, so 10.04, 10.08, as at the most 10.10, so two and a half Play-Doh. Um, balancing the bitterness to that residual sugar, I think, is everything and that lasting effect. Um it also the timing of when you're bittering. Um, sure, kind of the manipulating the quality of the experience of that bitterness. Yeah, so from the beginning, we we never have used a huge hop charge at the start of the boil. Um, we get at least half of our bitterness from 20 minutes and on, at least. Um, knowing that the more aroma hops we can add in, we're going to get bitterness from them, but we're going to get a lot more aroma per IBU. And now you've seen it like completely exposed and taken to the moon with uh, hazy, sure. juicy stuff where it's like just pure aroma, no bitterness. Um, and, so that, and that bitterness was the main metric through the dry at. hopping process, which, you know, everyone thought wasn't possible before, but it's clearly and right. obviously possible. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of the stuff that we, we had theories on and still practice today um, they're tough to really teach because they, we figured them out on our system and we don't have labs like Sierra and Firestone and, uh, Russian river that they can really analyze this stuff. It's, it's still very much like cooking sure, versus sure. like engineering things, but we know what works for our system and that's, that's been trial and error, but it, it, the conscious idea was IBUs to finishing gravity. Talk to me a little bit about finding, and I love that you've got uh, two different flagship, if you will, IPAs. Talk to me about um, designing hops for those beers 
And then let's also talk a little bit about malt component, because I think this is a thing that you all were also on that kind of front end and kind of pulling down some of that kind of richer caramel malt. They're still including some, but also lightening the the overall kind of appearance to let those flavors of hops kind of shine in West Coast IPAs. Talk to me a little bit about, uh, you know, both of those elements and how you started designing these. So from a, from a hop standpoint, um, it's really a quality of the ingredient. Yeah. Um, and that goes year to year, lot to lot, supplier to supplier, how they're stored, how they're treated up until they're used. Um, because More that so than just variety, huh? I, I think so. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah, where they're grown, I mean, a uh, Amarillo grown in Idaho is way different from Amarillo in other places. So it it is about selecting the right ingredient. Once you've selected what you like, um, I believe in layering of flavors strategically. Uh, as I was saying, I don't like when something's over-flavored in one direction or not, but the fact of the matter is, is that an IPA is an over-spiced food like that's the equivalent of it sure but so is curry and so is barbecue so how can you use that over spicing in a harmonious way to kind of taste as one and try and get away from the whole thing where if i'm drinking an ipa i go uh you know i I smell it i I taste it a little bit and i'm like okay that's really good i get that like nice almost like a stone fruit is that berry oh there's a little pine in there to the holy grail which is Damn, that's hoppy, and that's good, and now it's acting. But that's different hoppy than this hoppy because it's trying to achieve that that oneness through the aroma and flavor of the hops. Um, that's what we shoot for, and that's from our 20-minute editions, our flame-out editions. Uh, we whirlpool in the kettle as opposed to a whirlpool. Uh, we haven't gotten a whirlpool because we're scared since we know this system only. And in fact, we're going to get a second kettle whirlpool because we're, we don't know how it's going to work. It's going to change everything. Uh, to how we're dry hopping. I mean, from day one, uh, most of our hoppy beers are triple dry hopped. And a lot of this, too, I want to give all the credit in the world to Vinny and Pat, uh, Rush, Vinny Trollerzo, Pat McElhaney. I mean, we, we, I don't want to say we ripped them off, but Pat <laughs> McElhaney was like, an IPA should be as, as light in color as possible. And wheat goes in every single beer. Um, and Travis for listeners out there, he worked for, he was Vinny's first assistant brewer at the pub and worked for Vinny for five years. So heavily influenced by those two brewers and their philosophy on beer. And they never really tried to recreate or reinvent the wheel. They just kind of did their own thing. And that's how we look at it. And that's why we don't do any like crazy different beers, which we can get into later. But yeah, the malt, the whole malt thing seems so simple to me and i think that was a lot of exposure to east coast ipas that or formerly east coast i know i'm talking right 2000 you know, late, what used late to be aughts. called that kind of yeah late yeah late aughts east coast ipas or up until um the old ringwood and, yeast east, east coast thing yeah yeah i was like i don't i want more hops i don't want more malt so the trick in that is just making it as light and malt flavor as possible, yet still having enough malt to back up the massive amount of hops we're throwing at these beers. And what seemed like a really difficult thing to do was actually pretty easy. It's just like all two row and a little Vienna, some Carapils, and you're good. <laughs> and, and that's uh, it, yeah. And that, yeah, so we, 
the IPAs. When the, you say a little, bills, what does it tend to look like? Like, um, like five to ten percent Vienna and like a bag of Carapils. Yeah. Um. So I don't know, two and a half percent just to get some of those, just to have that melanoidin malt that does not contribute to any crystally caramely flavor. Right. Yeah, uh, which I think is a delicious flavor. But when I want to taste IPAs, I want to taste the hops. That's what I'm. That's that's what it is. <laughs> you know, it's like sure. I sure. want to taste the hops. That's why you drink an IPA. You don't drink it for balance. It's a very unbalanced beer. So let's you know, kind of expose this unbalance part of it, and you know, celebrate that this is what we really like in IPAs. Is right. is not balance, right. but a an overdose of hops. How do you, you know, you mentioned triple dry hopping and I imagine you, what you mean by that is you do three separate dry hops. So three different stages of dry hopping, which is not how everyone defines triple dry hopping these days. Um, how does that like given your hop load and where you're looking at for your bittering units, um, how do you divide say between, you know, 20 minute flame out and then dry hop, you know, over then that overall hop load, where does, uh, you know, how does that kind of break out? Oof. It's, um, and I know we're talking about general terms cause you make lots of beers and you know, it could be different for different beers, but yeah. And the only way I'm able to equate it or at least try and like communicate it is maybe it'll resonate with any musicians out there. But when you're writing a song, um, it just, it kind of just flows out. And then you kind of readjust it from there, and but you got to get it down on paper. And I guess writers are like this too. And Ernest Hemingway said, you know, write drunk, edit sober. <laughs> so it's like let's just get down on paper what we want, where we want it, and then all right, once it's down, now we can kind of go, okay, well maybe uh, we move that uh, 15 pound edition of Amarillo at 20, and we make it a 10, and put an extra five of Amarillo in the flame out, or let's save those for the dry hops, and just kind of do that, you know, change one thing, brew it, see how it is, change one thing next time, see how it is, and, and try and do that as much as possible. But when you do it enough, your your first shot's going to be pretty close. Um, the benefit professional brewers have is this, we do this multiple times a day. Right. So right. you get pretty good at knowing your ingredients, and you get pretty good at knowing what kind of uh, – what variable to change and how it's going to affect the the final product. But does that answer the question? How much? Yeah. You know, I'm just going to keep listening to you talk, Doug. Uh, how much does changing a, a hop addition from 20 minutes to 10 minutes impact the, uh, you know, the kind of perception and the way that it flows out in a beer looking at the, you know, over overall gestalt of that beer? Um, is it significant? Is it perceptible for you all at a sensory level? Or do you find yourself finding what you expected to find just because it was the creative expectation that you had for it? It is perceivable in difference when we make okay. changes. Um, we do all of our sensory blind, so we don't know yeah. what we're what we're tasting. Um, but we also don't do it. Uh, we don't look for a hedonic rating if we like it more or less. It's more. Right. Of, did you get more of this? Um, whew. 
you know, that is, give it give it a yeah. thought before we do that. This episode is brought to you by Brewers Publications, publishers of historical brewing techniques, the lost art of farmhouse brewing by Lars Marius Garshall. Equal parts history, cultural anthropology, social science, and travelogue. Historical brewing techniques describes northern European farmhouse brewing and fermentation methods that are vastly different from modern craft brewing. Order your copy of Historical Brewing Techniques today at brewerspublications.com. Also, Craft Beer and Brewing's all-access subscriptions give you a year of the print and digital editions of the magazine, plus access to our library of video courses, a special deep dive email only for all-access subscribers, premium content, and all-access exclusive merchandise. Go to beerandbrewing.com and click on the subscribe button to join now. It is clearly the best way to support this very podcast. So as we were saying, Doug, I've, give, I've given you a few minutes to think about it. Um, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, changing, changing the hops and where you're going to put them in 100% matters, but what also matters a lot is what type of beer it is What's the ABV? Yeah. I mean, are we talking a session IPA, a double IPA? Uh, is this, are we using noble hops? But they all, every single time you change it, whether it's um, the volume, the time, it should make a difference right. if your standards are being, you know, basically the control is there in place. But that's the the beauty in brewing is that we're constantly learning and really no recipe is ever set in stone um, for very long that it's, it's constantly being, uh, analyzed, evolved, and we're, we're trying to make it the best it can be. Um, so it's, it's hard when you get a new lot of hops or you're not able to select for one and shoot, making a new IPA is really tough that, that you plan to like have as a core, right? you know, say like you, you make one and it takes off. And now there's a high demand for it. And you're like, wait, are people going to notice this is different because it's going to be a little bit better? Do they like the old stuff better than this stuff? You know, and um, it's a moving target every single time, unless, you know, like a a beer of the pupil, which is 66% of our production. I mean, we've got that pretty damn dialed in. We're not really messing with that. Let's talk a little bit about creating a new beer. Now, I remembered a few years ago when, and I had had, you know, um, your mainline IPAs at this point, but you all rolled out this like fresh new sessionable IPA called the coachman. And, uh, over the last couple of years, now this is a, you know, 4% IPA, what some might call a session IPA, even though I, I don't know, I kind of hate that term for whatever reason. Um, a drinkable hop forward, aromatic, dry, small, crushable, drinkable beer. Um, and then you went and won two gold medals at GABF for it over the last few years also. Um, talk to me a little bit about formulating and building balance at that very, very low ABV level where all of these very small changes that you make to it um, have big impacts. Yeah, so just like you said, uh, small changes in a small beer make big differences, but when they fall into the right places – it's a pretty outstanding um, result. And I think a lot of that has to do with what we know about lighter beers is that they don't show as many flaws. And usually the the beers that are heavier, higher in alcohol, stronger, more robust in flavor can hide some of those things with with a 4.5% IPA. I mean, it, it's 
very noticeable. Um, we didn't think it could be done to even make a beer at five and a half percent and have it as hoppy. Uh, it just didn't seem right in our minds that you could have enough malt to support the amount of hops you need to throw at it to get it to be hoppy and not just like a light pale ale. Um, but we took a shot and honestly that the main thing is what we were all taught, uh, as homebrewers even is that mash temp and your high dextrin malt are going to really help prop up those hops. So it allowed us to just go crazy with the hopping on this. It's a lot of, lot of mosaic, a lot of Simcoe. Um, you get this huge peach bites. It's, from a sensory standpoint, it's our hoppiest beer. Interesting. Um, yeah, it is just incredibly strong in aroma and flavor with the hops, and I think that's because there isn't even that much two-row covering it up, whereas it, it's almost like a logarithmic scale that if you make a 9 or 10% double IPA, it's, it, it's not a linear thing where you're adding kind of like a scaled up version of the hops, you've got to add like four times as many hops as you would double IPA as you do a regular IPA. Cause there's just, there's a lot of flavor going on there with uh, you know, session IPA. I think we spent more time trying to dial in the body than we did right. the, the hopping regimen because w- without the body, it's going to taste like hop water mm-hmm. and go back to what we love doing, which is drinking things that taste like beer. Talk to me a little bit about that hops design for Coachman. You mentioned that you know it becomes your hoppiest beer because there's not a lot of other stuff to compete with it. Um, but at the same time, like small tweaks and even like small changes, even uh, year to year, you know, in in the hops themselves, you know, can have some pretty significant impacts in that kind of expression. Um, do you go through an evaluative process, uh, you know, and how do you continue to make sure that that beer, where all of those factors, you know, can have small impacts are consistent and meet the expectations for you all as brewers and for your customers? Yeah. I mean that we're, we're pretty lucky, um, in terms of maintaining that hoppiness and being able to achieve that hoppiness, uh, that we, we're able to select hops. So what that means is that we go to our hop suppliers uh, once a year, if not twice a year, and we're able to rub a bunch of hops from a bunch of different farms, bunch of different lots, and select for the the type of flavor profile and aroma profile that we want. Um, I think without that hop selection, it, it'd be a little more difficult. I think, uh, when you're when you're buying spot hops, you're kind of at the mercy of what's available. Um, when you're able to lot select, you're really able to dial things in. Um, if you if you're not able to, there's still workarounds. It's still going to be hoppy, but um, that's tough. I, I we've made a lot of hoppy beers without lot selection. I think the the best way that we've done it in the past is just kind of learn how those new hops, or even if we're on contract and we didn't have selection, learn how those hops are working and then adjust from there or try and trade other breweries hops. But a a lot of it is really just ingredient selection. That's, that's our biggest thing. How have your IPAs evolved since you initially envisioned them Uh, or have they, 
you know, this is always, you know, every, every beer writer, journalist, you know, has their own pet issues. And this is one that is just mine. I mean, people who listen to the podcast, hear me ask the question all the time. So indulge me for a minute. You know, there is a definition of beer as being an unchanging recipe that's the same for all time. And there is also the counter argument that a brand is what consumers expect from it. And that as consumer expectations change and palates change, then beers can adjust and change too. And, you know, and so from your perspective, have there been kind of tweaks and adjustments that you've made, you know, throughout the lives of some of your uh, hoppy beers to adjust for whether it's change in ingredients, whether it's expectations of customers so that it tastes as fresh and vibrant and as exciting to, you know, the folks that buy your beer as, as they, as it was the first time that they drank it, you know, how, how do those beers evolve for you? I mean, I would like to think they haven't changed, but I think that's kind of ridiculous to, there's no way, there's no way in hell what our beers taste like now tasted like that seven years ago. Doesn't mean they're a different person. You know, this isn't a, an sure. organ transplant. This isn't shoot, even dyeing your hair a new color or growing a beard or shaving your beard or whatever it is. Um, I was just thinking about it as you're saying, I'm like, it's probably more like changing, I don't know, like your toothpaste or something like that. Like there's a conscious change with something, but the overall outcome of it is not changed. Um, consumer taste change and I I don't believe that the beer can change to meet those. I and mean, there's plenty of famous beers out there that if the brewery were to try and change it, they would probably lose more customers than they would gain with changing it. I think as uh, consumers' palates change, it's probably best to keep making that beer and let it, you know, let it live as long as it can. But right. it's it's gotten old. It's gotten tired. Uh, there is a product life cycle, whether you like it or not. Um, but yeah, I'm sure the beers have changed. But the the foundation, the thought behind each one of them is still the same. And the outcome we're shooting for is still the same. So we're doing everything in our power to not change the beer. But there's no way it can't not change. I mean, it's, what is that? Yeah, what does that change? What would that change of process look like? Would it be you know sensory driven, where someone tastes something is like, yeah, this is a little different than I remember it being. Well, maybe we can adjust that a little bit for the next batch, and then you know blend it down with the batch that we just brewed, and kind of you know get it to where we think it should be. You know, what does that feedback process look like in your brew house? Um, a lot of it, when it happens, it's usually out of our control. Uh, we're not able to get Czech saws anymore. We have to use U.S. saws because that's all that's available. All right, well, this is changing the beer a little bit. How do we you know, make sure, do we dial it back? Because now the, this U.S. saws has twice the alpha as the European right. saws, things like that. Um, I think rarely is it like a very conscious effort to be like, well, this beer needs to be drier. Three years into it being successful, <laughs> I, can't, sure, sure. I, I can't imagine us saying, you know what, let's switch out the base malt and try Pilsner instead of two row because we need to dry this out more. It might sometimes be like, all right, well, uh, we can't get two row for the next two weeks because uh, the grapevine 
is flooded and there's ice everywhere. So we're going to have to use either somebody else's two row or uh, maybe we substitute with Pilsner and then something happens. You're like, wow, that wasn't what the beer was, but I do like what this brought in. What if instead of using uh, 2000 pounds of Pilsner, we use a hundred and kind of try and coax out that, that characteristic that we liked in there that we think is very complementary to everything else. So it's, it's less of a conscious decision and more about like, let's turn over a bunch of rocks and, Oh, look, we found something under this one. Let's see if it is consistent with how we want this to go forward. And now we've discovered something. It's like really, it's kind of like growing up. Like you don't as a person necessarily change. You're always who you were. You just become more yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's talk about hops for a minute. Um, as you are describing some of the core hops that you all use consistently in your IPAs, um, what kind of language do you use and how do you define what you're looking for in some of these major, you know, talk, talk to me a little bit about some of the varieties you use and then how you all might articulate what you want out of that hop in order to kind of meet that standard as you're going through this kind of selection process. Yeah, I mean, I think the uh, the easiest hops for us to really have defined are Nelson, Nelson Sauvin from New yeah. Zealand. We go out there to select too. Uh, that to me is just like classic uh, tropical. It was like the first really tropical hop. So what we look for is that mango guava, which was such a a rare thing back in the day. And now you're seeing all these other hop species come out of the the uh, the archives and have all these crazy different characteristics, but we that's what we look for mango guava. Um, there's been times where we've got Nelson that it kicks off almost like a diesely flavor. So we've had reduced Nelson, and how can we make up that mango guava with what hops are available that we don't have on contract? And that's kind of where it gets a little difficult and takes a lot of research from uh, in a no kidding around like a lot of drinking you know like uh but, but <laughs> oh, not, in vol- not not in volumes but uh seeing what other beers really taste like and what are they right. using and talking to the brewers and thankfully this community is so open and forthcoming with all the information it, it makes that process a little bit easier uh the other hop that we use a lot of is mosaic for uh the coachman which a lot of people use and that one specifically i mean it's called mosaic because it has this like really nice rounded uh, plethora of flavors. But what we shoot for specifically is peach. Hmm. Um, what we really liked in the Coachman was when it has this like super peachy, almost like a peach iced tea type characteristic. Right. Um, I think that's, we're kind of pushing that uh, the, the same angle we are with the pupil and that you get this like huge stone fruit, really like, soft lovely fruit aroma alongside these like pine and citrus notes and that's what we, the pupil too it's it's got this big guava mango uh characteristic but it also has citron centennial in it so it's balancing the intensity of that nelson out with citron centennial um and citra very citra very orangey centennial just classic pine citrus uh, we, we try and keep it as simple as possible from a definition standpoint, yet being precise. Um, I think if you get too over the top and it's not for fun, you might uh, 
you don't want to name something that nobody knows what in the world it is. And then, you know, that kind of reminds me of the wine world when someone's like, oh, it's very, like, it smells like smoshy. You're like, what's smoshy? I don't even know what that is. Oh, sorry, I've never had whatever the hell it is you're talking about. How do I know what that tastes like? Or if you say, like, peach iced tea, like, oh, okay, I can get that. So we try and simplify it as much as possible. Keep it relatable, yeah. Yeah, I mean, pine needles. You know, the things that we were naturally... Uh, most human beings in the United States can probably like identify is what we try and keep it to because sensory is it, it's not so much about how good of a taster you are, but more about how good at understanding what the flavors that you're tasting are. So having these super palates, yeah, it's beneficial, but being able to empower everybody in this building to, uh, successfully do sensory i think is way more important so it's simplicity and and not being over the top with it make it relatable to everybody that's that's what we go for yeah there's a sensory function that is internal in terms of you know defining what your brands are and measuring through that sensory process you know adding a layer to the qualitative kind of process to make sure that the beers are what you expect them to be and then there's sensory also as an externally relatable function where you are kind of, you know, using that language to create a connection to a customer and explaining that in a way that connects with them and helps them understand it so that they can, they have a way in and enjoy it. Um, you know, in that kind of, you know, two-faced sensory, well, two-faced, that has negative connotations. I don't mean it that way. Um, you know, looking at that bi-directional, you know, means in which sensory, you know, works, um, who, who's the kind of, you know, canonical keeper of, uh, of those, uh, definitions and descriptions who writes your beer descriptions and, uh, or is it a collective process? Do you keep them somewhere and how do people reference those kinds of things? So it, it is a collective process. I hate saying this, but I do have the, the final yes or no on if we're going to use that. I mean, if somebody yeah. wants to say toilet water, I'm like, abs- no, like find some, you know, <laughs> sure, sure. say something else, please. And that's for like internal stuff, but that's right, when I know right. if like something's not right. Um, it, it really is collective. And I think that's the best way to get sensory is that everybody is different. Just like our bodies, everybody, you know, people come in all shapes and sizes, like our sensory comes in all sure, shapes and sizes. Sure. So, um, having a, a good background in statistical analysis shows me that uh, the larger the, the data set, the better. So we, we right. want it to be uh, as collaborative as possible, as possible. Some people are really good at vocalizing what they're tasting. And that normally comes from experience and training. Um, and I think that's the hardest thing is, is getting the, the new people to speak up and say, here's what I'm tasting. And I like this. And um, going back to what I was saying earlier about having it be simple helps them kind of get in there. And then we can really coax out what these people are tasting. And if you think about it, the people who might be serving your beer front of house or uh, the accounting team or whatever, that their input might be more valuable than your lead brewer because they're probably more like your 99.9% of the people who are drinking your beer. So I think it's, it ha- for us, it has to be a collective thing. Uh, we do have everything on file. 
it uh, doesn't change that often. And then when we do sensory, um, we use a great app, and uh, I'm sure a lot of people on here use it, but uh, that's kind of how we, we set our standards on sensory. It, it comes from a database, and just like a recipe, it, it can be changed, but it's more about making it more precise and accurate and less about reinventing it. Yeah, yeah. Let's pivot for a moment and talk a little bit about your the beers that you all define as feral. Um, this is something I'm obviously excited about. Uh, they've rated incredibly highly with craft beer and brewing in the past, and uh, you know it's been really fun to to see that. Um, talk to me a little about the kind of genesis of that program and how you all have you know again found your voice with wild and sour beer in San Diego. Yeah, so that's that's a. I'll try and not make it a super long story because it's like <laughs> such a big project, and it's like one percent of our volume. Um, it it really goes back to making beer that we like to drink and making great beer that we like to drink and being inspired by the Russian rivers and everybody who was making it, you know, before us. Which honestly wasn't that many at the time compared to now. Everybody has a sour program, I and mean, there's probably trying to think it was Lost Abbey, Russian River, Firestone, Avery, New Glarus. I'm sure I'm missing some. I think Ithaca, when his name Jeremy, I think he was there. They were doing something, some stuff. Captain Lawrence. I mean, there was very rare. So we were like, all right, let's do this. Let's build a 2,000 square foot walk-in that's temperature and humidity controlled. Sours are going to fly out. Oh, God, the brewery. How did I forget that? Jeez. <laughs> um, and let's make the sours we really right, like to drink. Right. That we like to drink. The sours that have inspired us. And that's the stuff from Belgium. I mean, that that is like sometimes like when you have that one beer and you it's almost like a I just saw God type moment. Like your head flies back. And like this is the greatest thing I've ever tasted in my life. And all the American brewers that were doing it, the Allagash too, of course, um, they, they were doing these incredible things that we wanted to also do and be part of. So we dumped a bunch of money into this program, uh, bought a, a lot of very freshly dumped red wine barrels, and we didn't do it because we wanted the red wine flavor. We wanted the medium, the oak, because it's incredibly unsanitary. It's the complete opposite of stainless steel. And we weren't looking for wine flavor. I think there's a way to do that, and Vinny nails it. And he's got great relationships with all the vintners he gets his barrels from, so I think he can help. You can kind of create a recipe around that if you know what you're doing. He also comes from a wine background. So society's always kind of been like, we just want the wood. Give us your oak neutral. We don't want the oak flavor. We don't want the wine flavor. Give us the stuff that you're not getting oak from. We get it in-house. We rinse the, the heck out of them, and then we fill them up. Um, when we were kind of designing the beers for this system, it went back to what do we like to drink. And we wanted these super dry, tart, sour beers. But what we loved about them the most and what we strive for every day is funk, that funkiness, that it goes against it, it. 
it's like stinky cheese or so many odd flavors that you're like, for stinky cheese, like this smells like gym socks. Why do I want to put it in my mouth? That everything that we've been taught, that sure, we've sure. grown up with as our, you know, we become older is like, no, don't put that in your mouth. That's bad. You do that when you're like two and you learn, don't do it again. Um, that's kind of how it was with beer. It's like, uh, like the wet, wet horse blanket or no horse blanket, wet dog in a phone booth. I think Vinny said that barnyard goatee, you know? And I was just like, this goes against like everything that should be delicious, but why is it so freaking delicious? This is incredible. And knowing that that's what we wanted, we relied heavily on things that would create a lot of funk. So Britannomyces, different strains of Britannomyces and focus yeah. less on dropping the pH. Um, I think the, the sourness adds a layer of complexity and helps make beers like that pop. But uh, souring a beer in two weeks or three days, I mean – doesn't impress me and i don't think it tastes that good it's not really what i like to drink i mean for that i'll drink kombucha i'll, I'll eat yogurt i had a, a brewer early on come to me and say oh i've got this mixed culture i can sour a beer in five weeks and my response was somewhere along the lines of like that's not impressive yo play does it in two days so <laughs> creating sure, sure and now everyone's doing it with kettle right, sours, now you can do it in 24 it, hours yeah yeah creating creating Acidity right. is easy. It's how do we make this incredibly complex layered beer? Um, and I think that's time, blending, and a lot of experimentation. Uh, our first beers took four years to get released. They were probably ready at three, but we had to raise money to get a, a bright tank just for those beers and then a bottling line just for those beers. Uh, but we've... We call them ferals because I think sour is isn't fair. I mean, yeah. that'd be calling an IPA bitter. It, you're gonna call this beer that was aged for eighteen to thirty six months blended. We lost forty percent of it, the meticulously taken care of, bottled with a cork and cajun. You're gonna call it sour. There's so much more going on in that beer than just sourness, and. Uh, that's why we call them ferals. They're wild. They're funky. Uh, I think it was Peter Buchart who said that, uh, you know, with uh, Saccharomyces is like a dog. You can train it to sit, to stay. You know what time it wakes up. You know what time it goes to bed. You know how it eats. You know everything about it. And Britannomyces is like a cat. The second you think you this cat's going to do what you think you've taught it to do, you say, oh, come here, kitty. And it takes off and it runs the other way. <laughs> So it's it kind of like a like there is no control over these things. We know what our loss is. Uh, very much a passion project. Very much the like port and champagne of our world, and that it it takes up a lot of time and energy and takes a very small space on the shelf. Do you brew for specific projects with some end product in mind? Do you brew for blending stock to kind of? give yourself a palette to play with? Do you brew because you have an idea that this might be interesting and maybe it'll become something? 
um, you know, or is there some blend of these kinds of brewing strategies? Because, you know, as you mentioned, time and blending is a big portion in all of this. Um, how do you come up with eventual releases, but also how do you feed the front end of that and say, hey, we're this is what we're going to brew to put into these barrels. We, you know, we don't, we either we do have an idea of what it's going to become or we don't have an idea of what it's become, but we're going to just kind of push it forward here. What's that, what's the front end of that process look like? And then what does the back end of that look like? So the, the front end is very much brewing. It, there's always been a saying that, you know, brewer's job is to make food for the yeast, right? With regular clean beer. Yeah. Uh, with our feral barrel aged sour program. Uh, I think more than anything else, it's how do we create beer where these bugs and critters, the bacteria and wild yeast, will thrive and give us our desired results. So um, we have up to nine base beers uh, based on uh, color and uh, alcohol. So blonde, amber, dark, and then light, medium, strong. So 5%, 7%, 9%. And from there, we fruit different things. We've tried. Uh, so generally, most of the time, we'll do primary fermentation with a very high mash temp. And we'll move them over to the barrel room, put them in barrels, and then inoculate them with bacteria and wild yeast. Uh, but we've also done things where we've tried bacteria first and then added yeast. We've done open fermentations before. But uh, having a, a high mash temp, for primary fermentation. We've yeah. even played around with primary Saccharomyces between Cal Ale and our Belgian yeast stream, which is off the shelf. It's 530. Um, we've tried everything, but the goal is always to produce the best outcome. So now that it's left the clean side of the brewery, it's in the danger room, the danger zone. Now the back end comes up and it's like, all right, we have to be willing to accept about 40% loss. And we were never in this side of the business to get as much yield out of here. It was always, and still is, let's just make the best beer possible out of here. Don't worry about it. uh, If uh, we have to dump a bunch of barrels. So when they're in the barrels, we do certain things like instead of fruiting, we have a 20 barrel system. So instead of fruiting 10 wine barrels, we might do 10 times the concentration of fruit into one barrel. And knowing that we're going to have loss We'll do our final blend of where we're happy enough with the base beer and then dose it with the fruited barrel, knowing that once we touch that barrel, we pull out of it, we're never going to use it again. Um, we've tried to use it again. We've tried different techniques where we top up the barrels to keep the cultures active, uh, which is generally what we do, but we also don't want to break the pellicle. And the, everything is, every time we go in there, we're like, all right what are we going to learn today that we screwed up or what are we going to try today that we hope will be successful going forward? Sure. Um, we've got three stainless tanks in the barrel room too, which are really nice mm-hmm. because we're able to, uh, on purpose, we have different components. So we do have barrels that we've moved to kegs that are incredibly acidic beer. So we can use that to touch up the acidity. Uh, we have stainless sour feral beers that, we use to blend out oak flavoring. We have of those potentially nine beers I have, if we need a touch of like toast or if we need a touch of caramel, we can take from those lots of the, uh, the 
amber medium that is seven percent and you know has that color uh, but the the whole goal with the back end is that with blending we can achieve consistency so we're not brewing one batch of the harlot putting it in 10 barrels and saying i hope this turns out not only tasty but the same as it did two years ago so with blending we can we can get pretty good at all right, we've got these different things to play with. We have our fruited stainless with grapes in it, and we have 50 barrels of 5% blonde that we made. I know we can get about 30 barrels of really good product out of this. And let's use a little bit of the acid kegs. Let's use a little bit of the blonde that's in stainless to bring out, to tame down that oak. Um, so it's, it is... I know it's a terrible term. I don't like saying it, but kill kill a few to save many is kind of how we look at that barrel yeah. program. Is that if we want the right final product, we have to be willing to dump a bunch of stuff and know that that's just part of blending. And this isn't blending where we have two batches of pupil and one the BUs are a little low, one they're a little too high. So let's blend it out or blend them together in a bright tank. This is very much like you guys are all part of the final product. Some of you just didn't make it. Um, but it's, it's, it's fun. Uh, so this high temperature mash, you know, obviously you're trying to kind of, kind of push a dexterous malt there that gives, you know, Brett to a lot of stuff to feed in on over time and kind of create that. How do you keep acidity in check to allow Brett to do its thing and kind of build this, this funky component? Um, you know, obviously, you know, for a lot of folks, if you throw, you know, if you've got lactobacillus in there, it's just going to do its thing and it's going to make its stuff. And then it's going to get down to its kind of terminal acidity pretty, you know, relatively quickly. Um, you know, but keeping that in check while allowing that kind of funk complexity to develop is the magic of, of Belgian lambic, you know, and Belgian sour beers. Um, for you all, you know, in a warm environment, but a temperature controlled kind of barrel facility, what, what does that look like for you all in terms of, um, kind of giving, giving the bread time to do its thing without everything getting too, too sour? Well, it's a lot like primary fermentation and, and that we have to embrace simplicity, knowing that a lot of this uh, can get out of hand. So, well, that, that's not like primary fermentation, but uh, using healthy bread at the right temperature, um, using the right bacteria. So what we do is we prop up all of our different uh, lactic acid bacteria strains, so the lactobacillus, pediococcus. Uh, we've got a few of each of those. Uh, we keep those alive and uh, topped up in the barrel room. They're all in their own little separate brinks. We have each individual bread strain in its own separate brink. So um, having the right cell count pitch and then also the timing, maybe we add Brett first and then bacteria after. Uh, but being able to uh, work the kind of like the experience over the time of we know we like these two bread strains together. If we do two liters of lacto, one liter of PDO per barrel taking our notes and then coming back in nine months and seeing how it tastes that's how we've been able to get that that really nice balance um and so it's it's timing uh it is for the most part us not having a like a house slop like sure, a culture sure. where it's like here's our culture 
Um, everything grows at, at different rates. So we've always wanted to be able to control at least the pitching rates of everything. With bacteria, you don't really know the pitching rate. You can kind of tell the activity of it based off of pH dropping from when you feed it to when you're pitching it. Um, that's, that's the best we've been able to do. Um, keeping it at 58, 56 to 64 degrees, uh, really not above 62 um, with a, a dehumidifier in the room because it's vapor sealed. Um, we can reduce a lot of the evaporation, which would lead to more headspace. Uh, so uh, keeping the levels high with a low head, head surface area and low temperatures, at the minimum, we're going to almost completely inhibit acetobacter right. creating acetic acid. That That's the number one off flavor uh, we identify here at Society. It has its place. Flanders Red is classic sure, sure. for that stuff. But um, we really like a, a very bright, clean acidity um, with a, a strong yet balanced funk. And it, it, it's, it's Brett selection. It, it comes from not just your strain, but who you're getting your strain from. Right. Uh, there's been a, a lot of controversy over that recently, um, kind of like in the, the rumor circle, rumor mill of the professional industry, um, bacteria too. It Trying it, and it kind of feels like wine more than beer because, like I was saying earlier, that we're not doing this multiple times a day. We're doing this sure. a couple times a year <laughs> at the most. Right, right. So – um, I think note taking is the biggest biggest aspect of it, and then being able to replicate as much as possible while knowing you still have no control over the final product. So just being, a, I think it'd be very difficult to have a successful um, barrel age sour program with less than maybe a hundred barrels. Really, depending on this, if you have a two barrel right. brew house, it's different. But at a 20, 20 barrel brew house. I'd say we need at least 200 to be able to even put out somewhat of a good product consistently. Wow. wow. Let's pivot again. Uh, as a, at the very top of the podcast, I mentioned it and I want to get it to it before, uh, before we get out of here. Um, you, for the first number of years of society's existence, never packaged beer. You'd put beer in growlers and you would, you know, allow, you'd give customers to go beer if they came to the brewery and you focused on draft beer out in the world of beer bars, et cetera. Um, but you never packaged beer for distribution and sale, but then that changed. And then you got a crowler machine and it was like, Oh my God. I remember when I started, we started getting crowlers here, uh, you know, ships to us like that's so different because the first beers that you would send us to the magazine were all put into stainless steel growlers and then like, you know, electrical taped up and like, that is, um, okay. That's a thing. <laughs> Maybe not the best format to send beer to a, a beer magazine for reviewing, but it, it's the way you all did it. And then they started coming in crowlers like, oh, that's different. And I think probably better for the integrity of the beer that you're sending us. And now you are full on in cans, individual cans, and have made a giant pivot in the way that you sell and distribute beer. What's really fascinating to me was that you made this decision and, and have kind of put the pieces in motion to make that change before this current kind of pandemic environment, you know, came upon us. And 
in fact, it turned out to be pretty perfect timing for that kind of model switch and that you were able to package beer and continue to get beer out to people in this kind of package. Talk to me a little bit about that philosophical change for you and you know, some of the process of making such a, you know something that was so principled for you in terms of not packaging beer, kind of pivoting psychologically, philosophically, and then moving forward in this kind of packaging realm. Yeah. So, um, I mean, business changes and I think, uh, a business's ability to adapt as quickly as possible. And I'm not talking about making new product. I'm talking about, you know, when you get creative, it's it, for us, it's not coming up with the next new thing in beer. It's how do we do our core business better? Um, when we started in San Diego, we were the 52nd brewery. And that was at the time was already saturated. Uh, I looked at a lot of the breweries that I admired and I said, how did they win? Well, Stone didn't win by trying to be the next Anheuser-Busch, right? They won being the rebels, making a beer called Arrogant Bastard, making these, doing the complete opposite of Anheuser-Busch. And I think that's a smart move because if you go up against somebody who's 10, 50, 100, 1,000 times bigger than you, you're not going to win. It's just, the chances aren't there. So how can you kind of – or not how can you. Where can you succeed from a business standpoint? Um, we knew at the early onset we weren't going to beat the established craft breweries on a quality level on the shelf. It just wasn't going to happen. Uh, we were very much – in the, uh, unable to, uh, from a quality QA, QC standpoint, put out good product on the shelf that we know for 90 days is going to taste good. So, okay, well, where can we win? Well, shit, draft beer is pretty easy to get uh, high-quality, consistent results if you're a small local brewery only distributing, self-distributing in your local market. Uh, our salespeople were able to deliver our kegs, touch the kegs, uh, place reorders in to get those beers on tap fresh. If there's something out of code, which was rare, we could grab it back really quickly. We could do all these things because we were small and nimble. Um, but we knew that wasn't a like a, a long-term thing. It was like, let's reassess where we are. What's our plan for this year? So as we started to grow and we became kind of prominent in the San Diego on-premise scene, um, on-premise being consumed on site you know, with 1,200 tap handles in San Diego, 92% of our business was wholesale. It wasn't, it was self-distributed wholesale. It was never tasting room. Um, that's how we, that's why we, we saw that as our competitive advantage. I can't compete with the stones and green flashes and ballast points and Carl Strauss's of the world in our local market, but I bet we can beat them in restaurants and bars. Uh, and we started to grow. And and you, didn't, you didn't actually have to beat them. You just had to earn your place, you know, among them. Really. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I don't mean, I don't mean beat them, but yeah, where can, where can we right. succeed? Right. Where can we, that, I guess as I say is where can we succeed? I have a chance against, I always use stone because I know, Greg and Steve are good friends of mine. I know they wouldn't mind if I sure, use them, sure. but 
when we opened doing a thousand barrels a year and they were doing 200, 250, it's like, it's crazy that I'm not going to get into a big chain grocery and compete with stone. Uh, but a brewery doing a thousand barrels a year can be the same size as a brewery doing a quarter million barrels a year at a restaurant in San Diego. Yeah, sure. Sign me up for that. Um, but as we started to grow, we started really, you know, capture a lot of the market and, um, you know, packaging was never out of our scope. Uh, if there's any, uh, packaging equipment suppliers listening to this, that talk to them all probably every 18 months. <laughs> sure. Sure. Um, we just, we just don't, we've never said things like, Hey, well, we're looking at a bottling line. You know, it just, it was in the background, it was happening. Or, hey, we're looking at a canning line. And like every year, I'm sure I've frustrated every single salesperson out there because the amount of quotes they've given me that they probably haven't converted into uh, positive leads and then sales, but they've been patient. Um, but what it really came down to was that we, with the market, we hit a point where for society, we were like, we're only doing 5,000 barrels a year. And every time I talk to another brewery owner and I tell them that we're doing 5,000 barrels a year, they kind of like their jaw drops and they're like, what? I thought you're doing like 30 only in San Diego. And it just kind of came to the point where it's like, we are holding back from our consumers. Like people have been asking for cans since day one or bottles and then cans. Let's give the people what they want. And one of our core values is that customers are important. And I think as a, basically consumer goods producer, you don't choke that chicken. You're like, all right, let's open the floodgates. Let's do this. So uh, towards the end of last year, I did a little uh, small uh, money raise to put in a high-quality canning line, uh, some increased lab stuff. We have a full-time lab person now. Uh, we spent almost as much money on our lab as we did the canning line. And... Um, the whole idea is if we grow, two people win. Society, because we've increased our revenues and our profitability, which allows us to make higher quality beer with a better lab, better processes, uh, more highly skilled people through recruiting and training, and the consumer wins. Now you can drink society at home from a six-pack, and it's also arguably better beer than it was three years ago from a quality lab standpoint. Um, so that's, that's why we did it. It was, it was very much like, let's give them what they want, them being the consumers. And it's time we have to, we have to evolve. That's just really what it comes down to. Um, man, the timing of it was, whew, that was, that was extremely fortunate we weren't supposed to get everything up and running until May of this year, basically right now. And uh, one of our investors who wanted a seat on the board, uh, he wanted to actually be the chairman of the board, got it. And when I was kind of giving him a rundown of how we're going to spend the money, when we're going to spend the money, when we expect to can, and kind of gave him our financial projections, he he plainly said to me, Doug, you get this thing up in, this is in, De in December. You get this up and running in February, and no later than that. And I said, I, look, I, I can't do that. We have all these logistics we have to do. We have to order cans. We have to order cartons. Uh, the canning line 
has to be built, it has to be installed, it has to be commissioned, it has to do all these things. And he basically told me, well, now's the time when you use the guys that you've talked to me so highly about, which are Mike and Teddy, VP of Ops and Ardobo, put them on it, let's see if they can get it done. They got it done. We brought on a ringer of a VP of Sales January 1st, and uh, as of now, uh, May 21st, uh, we are back to pre-COVID revenue. Uh, we're now filling our 80s with 100 barrels. We're filling our 40s with 60. Um, we're canning five days a week. We're hiring a packing specialist to start another canning shift. It, it was literally the floodgates have been opened. Uh, we'll, we're brewing at four times our volume last year. And this is, you know, it, it, if you had been the draft only and taproom sale package brewery, that you were before that, it'd be a very different story than it is now. Uh, we we would have been out of business. Wow. 90, on February 2nd, 100% of our revenue came from on-premise sales, 100%. Wow. That's 8% from our tasting room and 92% from wholesale. February 3rd, we started canning. By the time the shelter-in-place orders and restaurants were shut down in California, we were at about 84% on-premise. So we've taken that 16%, we'll call it 10% because we're still selling beer out of the taste room to go, call it that 10% will now be 200% of 2019's volume. So it's been a crazy acceleration up. How, how are you selling that volume of, of canned beer you know, I, you have to be leveraging the relationships that you've built out there, you know, over the years, uh, you know, in order to move that much beer. And so, you know, is that taking some of that, those distributor, well, you know, and you all were self-distributing for a long time too. Talk to me a little bit about that kind of pivot and change. Yeah, so we, we self-distributed for seven years and signed with uh, a new startup called Scout Distribution Company. Um, the, excuse me, the CEO is this guy, his name's Jeff Hansen. He was a, uh, Boston beer guy for a long time. Then went to Pepsi, I think for a little bit and then Coronado, then St. Archer, St. Archer sold. He left the company. He started, I think it was like a coconut water company or whatever. And he had a, oh, I don't want to say too much. I think when he was able to come back into beer, he got back into beer and he's a, a sales veteran. So he wanted to start his own distribution company and um, wanted to sign some brands. I think they started a little over a year ago. I'd been friends with him for a long time. It's long story short, but he he was my sister-in-law's best friend's boss. So we kept in contact, and when he heard we were kind of looking at signing with the distributor, which the reason we started looking at that was that our core business – is making and selling beer, not logistics of delivering beer on top of the sales. So my number two here at Society, when we were in 700 restaurants, was spending most of his time running the logistics and the sales team for self-distribution and not focusing on our core business. So we said, it's time to outsource this. Let's let distributors do what they do best, which is putting the beer into the restaurants and do what we do best, which is brewing beer and selling it 
Um, not that we're the best at it, but that's what we do best. That's, that's our strongest internal sure. skill. Yeah, exactly. Um, knowing that we were kind of going down that path of talking to distributors, which we started talking to distributors, I would say maybe August, September of 2018. Right. So it was a, it was a long process. Then um, there's all the distributors in San Diego are, are incredible. There's right, so much competition right. that you know, the, the stakes are higher to perform. So it was, a, it was a really tough decision, very tough. But we chose Scout because they were so new to the market, and uh, they had and still have an incredible culture and an incredible team there, all veterans from distribution companies. Uh, both sales and operations. So we were like, this is cool. Let's get in on the ground floor and let's grow our businesses together. Um, so they've been a huge help on that end. Uh, dropping beer for off-premise is an animal we don't understand and never have understood. We mastered the on-premise in San Diego. We knew that if we ever wanted to get into canning one day, there's no way we're going to do this by ourselves, and we got to establish this relationship before we even go down this, you know, walk that path of, of packaging beer. So, uh, yeah, we've been with them now. It'll be a year, June 1st, and uh, they do a great job. And honestly, every we're lucky in San Diego. All the, all the wholesalers here do a great job from the littlest person to the, the biggest guys. Um, so it's a, it's a great market. It's a great time to be a, a brewery with a distributor in San Diego. That's it's kind of fascinating just to see how you all have put those pieces in place because they were an evolution for the business, but it turned out to be the most timely of possible solutions that you could have come up with on this. Um, <laughs> I, you know, oh I want to go to Vegas yeah. with you next, Doug, because, uh, <laughs> no, 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 no. I think, I think it, it just comes down to it's, I mean, luck's part of it, but I believe if any listeners out there know of a, a writer named Jim Collins, he wrote a book. He's written many books. One of them, I think it was in Built to Last, or it was Enduring, I don't know, whatever. He says that return on luck is everything. That, yeah, you have uh, Bill Gates, and people might say he was lucky because he was raised in an upper middle class neighborhood. In Seattle, the high school he went to had access to a certain computer. Then he got into Harvard, and Harvard was the first computer lab in the world to have this computer that allowed him to build Microsoft. It's like, but there were also 20,000 other people that had that same opportunity. And not only that, that uh, like an airline like Southwest, they were profitable in 2001 and 2002 after 9-11. The only airline in the world that did that. So, yes, people get hit with good luck. And whenever you think, oh, they just got lucky, they've also gone through a lot of bad luck events that they were able right, to mitigate right. the destruction. So I, I like the idea of return on luck, and I think a lot of that is knowing the opportunity ahead of you and then how to make the right move for it. And for me, it's been stepping back a whole bunch. And empowering other folks to make, uh, you know, to kind of take leadership roles. Yeah, I mean, that's just, we hired a VP of sales for a reason. I'm not going to tell him what to do. He tells me how to do it. I say, okay. Fair that's enough. That's why we hired Fair him. Fair enough. Um, for Society Brewing, what, you know, taking, a, again, another step back and, you know, putting on your philosopher's cap right now, what does 
success look like for society? When will you know you've achieved it? How do you define it? And, uh, and what is it for you? It's, it's pretty simple. Um, I mean, it's, I just want to achieve a few simple things and do those exceptionally well. That is growth, customer satisfaction, employee satisfaction, and expense management. That's, if I can do that, I can make a great company. And all those executing well on those will make everybody in this company happier, uh, better people, more fulfilled, willing to stay on longer, so lower turnover, uh, better training, job growth, and I, I feel like those are the, the four pillars, but aside from those, it's we have a vision statement, and it says we, we want to make great beer, work hard, have fun, and treat people the way we would like to be treated. It's as simple as that, and through those four things, I mean, that's kind of like my, my guiding compass these days. And then I have my, my goals and growth, I think will allow us to do the fun stuff that'll allow us to get a pilot system that'll allow us to get the cool toys in the lab. That'll allow us to pay for better benefits. And the expense management portion is that you, I mean, if you, if you're spending more than you're growing, then what's the point? And then employee satisfaction is everything. I mean, they uh, this will be the first year that they get to uh, rate me on how I'm doing at executing our goals. Um, and customer satisfaction. I mean, the customers are the ones that pay our bills, literally. So they mean everything. So we have to be easy right. to do business right. with. Uh, there's nothing more frustrating to me than when I go to a place – I'm willing to cough up 25 bucks for two sandwiches and beer for myself and my wife. And it's a pain in the ass. It's like, we don't, I don't care how, who you are, your financial situation, like 25 bucks. You don't want to waste that. And we go to restaurants. I was just thinking about that. I saw a great article that it's like, restaurants aren't there for quality food. They're there for the comfort. They're there for like the, having that experience and if you're using your hard-earned money somewhere else i mean you deserve good service you deserve good product you deserve everything and you know while the customer may not always be right the customer is entitled to his or her opinion and if we are on the service side it's our job to make sure that person who we don't know how much, how little or how much money that person makes. They, every penny they're spending on us is worthwhile and we want to ensure uh, the best experience for them. And that's not just on site, that's at restaurants and bars. So that goes back to quality. That goes to our distributor who uh, they work their tail off to, you know, ensure our success. That goes to the, the liquor stores that we need to help them uh, make sure that they have product stock so they don't have an angry customer come in it's just treat people the way you'd like to be treated it's it there's just trying to simplify this whole thing has made my life incredibly clear and really easy to uh kind of like how should i say i don't know put a number on like it's easy to rate where i am right now well you know if you decide to get into the business of life coaching i want you to be mine and uh <laughs> <laughs> Because I could use I could use Doug Constantine or pep, pep talk 
anytime. Um, nearly 2,000 breweries across the U.S., Canada, and Mexico partner with G&D Chillers. Old Orchard to step up your fruit game. Hopsteiner is your premium supplier for quality hops and hops products. Scott Fabricating invites you to take a ride on the Magic Bus. Historical Brewing Techniques, The Lost Art of Farmhouse Brewing is out now from Brewers Publications. And Craft Beer and Brewing's all-access subscriptions are the best way to support this very podcast. Doug Constantiner, Society Brewing, thanks for joining me on the podcast. If people want to learn more about Society, uh, where do they find you? Uh, me, per- I mean, I have an Instagram. I'm not that exciting, though. Um, I'd How say do they fo- find Society? Follow at Society Brewing on Instagram. Uh, Facebook, we're at Society Brewing also. Those those are our best channels. We've got a an all-star of a, a social media manager right now, and she uh, she's doing a great job. I think that, yeah, that... That's the best way to do it. That's that's our news outlet. You can sign up for our newsletter too. But and, and you're shipping some beer. You're shipping some beer outside of California now, aren't you? No, just in state. Oh, it's just in state. Yep. Okay, okay. So if you live in the state of California, you can now order Society Brewing beer and have it shipped right to your home for the time being. I might put for the, the kibosh on that. Yeah, we're. Oh, so yeah. get it now because yeah. it's so rare. <laughs> It's so rare, well, it may not exist forever. We're, we're That's a clever strategy, no, Doug. I see where you're going We're there. expanding our distribution <laughs> footprint, so hopefully you can go to the store and get it. And um, Yeah, no, there's, we, that could be like a, we could have like a whole liability yeah, and compliance yeah. podcast on that. Fair enough, fair enough. That We'll leave that for another time. Doug Constantine or Society Brewing, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thank I you, have Amy. wanted to do this since 2017 when we launched this podcast. I'm glad we were finally able to have this conversation and I can't wait to have a beer with you in person at your gorgeous tap room in San Diego sometime relatively soon. Thank you. Yeah. Likewise, I'm looking forward to that and really everybody who comes in here, it's, we, we miss you all and uh, I'm happy you're doing what you do and you're, you're keeping us all connected. So I appreciate that. Well, cheers. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew.